welcome to another episode of Jubilish with Gerard. Um, this is the 10th episode and I honestly can't believe you know that we are entering double digits this week because you know, honestly it just feels like I started this a couple of weeks ago you know, just like for fun but you know here we are after a good solid nine weeks. So thank you to all of y'all you know for, for all the support you've given me so far and for all the constructive feedback as well. So this week, I'm going to talk about something that's slightly more serious, I would say, you know, compared to my uh, previous two podcast episodes. So, and I think this topic, right, I really wanted to talk about it for quite some time, uh, but I don't think I was capable of doing it alone, or you know, just because I didn't have uh, that much of a, of a knowledge or background uh, in this particular uh, topic. So yeah, so this week, we're going to talk about fashion. Like, I mean, I know that my fashion sense is not great. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, you know, I think this is a quite interesting topic, uh, topic to like uh, talk about. So when we talk about fashion, right, there are like, so many brands out there. You know, when we say fashion, you think of like you know, Gucci, Tommy Hilfiger, Armani, Zara, Adidas, Nike, Uniqlo, Under Armour, H&M. And it just goes on, you know, it goes forever. And uh, in fact, you know, apparently, uh, when I searched on Google, right, they're close to like 191,918 uh, apparel shops, uh, apparel uh, manufacturers in the world. And, and I'm pretty sure like, you know, none of us would even know like 1% of it. So that this, that's how many uh, fashion brands we have in this world. Um, but yeah, so today we're going to talk about uh, the world of fashion and uh, explore some of like, you know, the inherent issues with it. And for that, I have a very special guest, you know, who's my, uh, who's also my friend since uh, secondary three. So he's Thaddeus Han Wenjiang. So uh, Thaddeus will be reading uh, economics in NUS this year. And uh, yeah, hi Thaddeus, welcome to the show. Hi Gerard, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure and honor to be part of this podcast and show. Yeah, sure, no problems. Uh, okay, Thaddeus, so like, before we talk about, you know, like the finer details and, you know, talk about uh, fashion from a very like a macroscopic point of view. Uh, I think we can start off by talking about your own personal experiences and you know how you, you know, how all this interest with fashion kind of started for you. Because you know you are literally like the only person that I know of, right? He's a, who's yeah. like a fashion buff. Like you know, I I did not met anyone who's you know, that interested in fashion as much as you are. So yeah, so I mean. How did this all begin? Like, you know, when uh, were you like introduced to this world of fashion? I see. Okay, so before I answer your question, I just mm-hmm. want to make a very personal disclaimer. Uh, all of the views I share are of my own and of my own personal experiences with the fashion industry at large. So as we all know, um, fa- the fashion industry is huge and many of us may have differing or conflicting opinions about certain practices in the industry. So this podcast hopefully will just be my an opportunity for, for me to share my personal experiences with fashion and how I have um, changed, like how my life has changed as a result of interacting with the fashion industry and the knowledge I've learned from the fashion industry. Yeah, I just wanted to, to push a disclaimer out in case my yeah. views may come off a bit uh, conflicting or controversial with any of yours. I think, yeah. I think it's quite essential. Yeah, uh, culture nowadays. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> anyway, back to your question, Gerard, mm. with regards to how I first got started um, mm. with the fashion industry, 
I must say that I have actually been very inspired by my cousin mm-hmm. to join or rather be read up a bit more about the fashion industry. My cousin is a professional fashion photographer and she okay. work, presently she works in Singapore mm-hmm. as well as in New York. Okay. I believe wow. she works for an agency so mm-hmm. she shoots in a professional capacity and she's been doing this for I believe close to 10 years or mm-hmm. over a decade or more. Yeah. So that is really how I first got started with the fashion industry. Okay, but like, I mean, I don't think that alone could have been like, you know, the initial thing that, okay, that could have been the initial spark, but you know, something you know, should have like lasted that made you like pursue it for quite some time. So like, when and like, why did you start to develop a genuine interest, you know, for fashion? Alright, so I remember this um, conversation with my cousin mm. happening back in 20, I believe it was 2014 or somewhere along mm. those lines, back in secondary school. Yeah, so, um, back at the point in time, I had been writing on my personal blog. Mm. And yeah. I, yeah, and you know back then, before Instagram was a huge thing, or Facebook, I guess Facebook was okay, but yeah. insta- before, before Instagram was a huge thing, mm. blogging was the in thing, and yeah. many people wanted to start their own blogs. Mm. So since I was already writing my own um, content on my own blog, I was thinking, hey, why not uh, write about fashion? I told mm. my cousin that, hey, I wanted to be a fashion blogger. Mm. And she challenged me, she was like, Okay, so if you want to be a fashion blogger, if you want to write or speak about fashion, mm. what do you know about fashion that uh, you can share with your readers? Mm. And so I realized that at the point... That's fair enough, right? Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. Mm. And I realized that at the point in time, I was like, oh my god, I realized that, yeah, I knew nothing much about fashion. Mm. And I wanted to blog about fashion because I thought it was the in thing. Mm. Right? So that was me in 2014. But uh, actually recently, maybe a few weeks ago, I've had a chance to really think as to think back on my career choices and really think as to why I decided to join fashion or what was so attractive mm. about fashion. And I realised that, um, so you know back then in secondary school I had very bad um, acne yeah. and my skin was really horrible mm. and I realised that fashion was like an outlet in a way, like this weird skilled outlet for mm. me to get accepted by people. Mm. Because when you think about fashion, you think of people who look fantastic. You think of people who, you know, um, wear beautiful clothes and mm. wear expensive clothes. They have a very like idealistic image. Yeah, I guess so. So okay, yeah. yeah, so they are people who you want to be like. Mm. And because I used to have very bad acne in secondary school, and to a certain extent I got bullied in secondary school for my face, mm. uh, I wanted to be accepted and liked by the people around me. So, so I thought, hey, if I were to become a fashion blogger, maybe mm. people would like me. Okay. Yeah, so that... I didn't, I didn't really think about that until very recently, like when mm. I was re- reflecting on why I joined uh, mm. fashion in the first place, or why, what got me really interested in fashion. Mm. So partially I would say that, this, yes, my cousin was like the spark. Mm. Her challenge, so to speak, was like the spark for me mm. to join fashion, to be read up about fashion. And then uh, afterwards, my upon further reflection, mm. I realised that, yeah, because maybe because I wasn't very confident with myself there. So you saw like fashion as like a kind of like an escape route? Correct. In a way, yes. Mm. Uh, yeah, so the more I read up about fashion, mm. I realised that, you know, fashion is this um, amazing medium, that amazing art medium mm. that allows you to interact with. Mm. So for more, many other pieces of art, like many, many other media of art rather, mm. uh, they are more like static. So they are more like um, two-dimensional paintings yeah. or sculptures mm. or installations. Whereas for fashion, you can actually um, interact with it firstly, mm. and you can really express your own creativity, your own imaginations, your own point of view 
in something that can be interacted that other people can interact with. Mm. Yeah, and so I really appreciated that aspect of mm. fiction. Yeah. Okay, so so like what was like your initial uh you know, aspiration in the field of fashion? It was it was it to be a fashion blogger? Um actually I didn't really consider blogging as like a legitimate thing back then. Mm. So I thought, hey, why not move on to become a fashion journalist? Okay. So fashion journalism was a genuine career path. Mm. I, I read up on this back in 2015. Mm. I, I was thinking, hey, as a natural extension, why not transition from being a fashion blogger to being a fashion journalist who covers the fashion industry? So that's like, that was like kind of your dream job back in secondary school? Back in secondary school, correct. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, so fine. So that was like why you wanted to do it and you have a solid reason and that's what you wanted to become, right? So, I think secondary school came to an end and that's when JC started. So like, what steps did you take, you know, in order to have, you know, to, in order to have the opportunity to consider fashion as a realistic career choice in the future? So this was from um, secondary school moving onwards yeah, to JC. Yeah. So uh, in JC, I actually, I think as you will know, mm. I was a, I was an ID arts student. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember like how I ended up being an ID arts student. In fact, I got challenged by mm. one of our classmates to pursue ID art, mm. uh, despite having zero prior art experience. And mm. for some reason, I don't know why I did it, but yeah, I just uh, decided to take out ID arts, maybe of sort of like a personal challenge. Mm which ended up to be one of the better or best decisions I made in my life. Mm. Because I got to learn so much more about the fashion industry during my um, mm. journey in ID art, and it also really shaped me uh, to become the person who I am today. Mm. So back to your question as to how that transition yeah. ended up. Uh, during my secondary school days, I was already reading up about you know, the different functions of fashion. So mm. for example, who are the main brands, who are the main luxury brands, what is luxury brands compared to what is fast fashion brands, for example, mm. and who are the main key designers who we should know if you want to even enter the fashion industry. Mm. So people like Coco Chanel or uh, Armani, etc, etc. And moving onwards to ID art, it really gave me the opportunity to not only immerse myself more in fashion, because I actually worked with fashion as a medium, like fabric as a medium, and my works will revolve around fashion. Mm. But I also got a chance to really think about my own career path even after graduating from JC. Mm. Right? So um yeah moving so let's just go and look at point by point. Mm. First point first one and second point. So the first point is to how I developed my passion or my interest in fashion. Mm. Uh, during ID, mm. yeah, during my ID, uh, I really had the opportunity to create more works revolving around um, fashion mm. or fabric, mm. and I had the opportunity to go and research and read up more about the fashion industry at large. Mm. So this really continued to hone my interest in fashion. Mm. And having blocked in secondary school, I was thinking, hey, why not I consider this as a possible career choice? Mm. So I was thinking, why not apply to universities such as Central St. Martins in mm. London, which is one of the top fashion schools mm. in the world, or London College of Fashion, which mm. is also in London. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking, why not pursue a degree in fashion journalism? Yeah. And back then in JC, I guess I was a bit idealistic to think that that was possible, but mm. I'll come back to that later. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I remember you talking to me about all those universities like back then, 
Which we kind of did actually yeah. <laughs> recently. Yeah, we did. We did meet up there. Yeah. But then, um, but yeah, I mean, from what you are saying, right, it seems like you had a lot of interest in, in, in you know, fashion that you even based your ID art off it. But then, then what happened? Like, where did it all go? Like, I don't know, like completely different. Because now you have chosen to read economics, right? <laughs> and like, correct. yeah, I mean, it's yeah. like, like a total change in like, career path. Like, how did this happen? Why did it happen? I see. So in JC, we have this, um, we're always, we're always contending between yeah. choosing or following your passion mm. and choosing a subject or a field of study that is practical, right? Especially yeah. in university. I think, I think everyone, yeah, most people should through that, go through yeah, that right, phase. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So I also personally, I also had that conflict in mind. Mm. Should I pursue my passion, mm. which is to become a fashion journalist and study overseas? Mm. Or should I, um, follow a more practical, traditional path to become, or as I said, to study a technical skill, technical mm. subject, which is economics. Mm. Yeah. Alright, so I can say that I was really passionate about mm. fashion as a whole, but I decided in the end that it wasn't a very practical career choice. Why? Mm. Back in DC, I thought that, you know, if I were to become a fashion journalist, or if I were to start my own fashion business, I could maybe come back to Singapore and start something here. Mm. But I realised that in Singapore, there is really no fashion market at all. Mm. And I'm not saying this just because, you know, majority of Singaporeans do not uh, prioritise fashion as something to be overly concerned about. But if you look at the data and the numbers as to the, our population and our income levels and things like that, not everybody may uh, appreciate fashion or the market, the, to me the population size is too small to sustain mm. a livable market. And therefore I realised that it is not um, you know, my own subjective opinion that there is no market here, but the numbers and the statistics are showing that even if I wanted to start a fashion business here, it is really extremely difficult to scale it to an extent where it, we can um, to, make it correct, to make it sustainable and we can thrive mm. off it. Correct. So I was actually very inspired still to mm. maybe start my own thing, even mm. if it might be a bit challenging to start a sustainable and scalable fashion business in Singapore or make a career out of fashion in Singapore alone. Mm. I was thinking, hey, why not? And so this actually was what I've been working on, not really primarily, of course, but on the side in national service. Mm. Yeah, so in national service, I, did, I thankfully I have the opportunity to mm. be a stay out uh, club. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I didn't... Thankfully, I didn't have to stay in. So mm. this really gave me the opportunity to explore, you know, um, interests outside of NS, outside of work, so to speak. Mm. And I decided to use this time productively mm. to pursue or to explore a bit of interest here and there. And this all boils down to fashion. So the first uh, thing that I really wanted to tackle, I was thinking if I wanted to start a startup, I have to solve a problem. Mm. And the first problem I wanted to tackle would be the waste problem, the sustainability issue that so many people don't like fashion for or like yeah. critical of fashion for mm. uh, many people as you know understand the environmental impacts of fast fashion mm. fast fashion has been heavily criticised by many yeah. people as being an extremely um, unsustainable environmentally unfriendly practice and yet people still support it mm. so I was thinking is it possible to make the fast fashion industry less wasteful can we do something about the clothes that people throw away can we recycle it? 
So at back then, at my point in time, I, I was thinking, you know, if we can take pieces of paper, shred it, uh, put it into pulp, make it into pulp or something, and recycle it, why can't we do the same for thread? Mm. Why can't we do the same for fabric? And mm. why can't we make new pieces of clothing out of discarded pieces of clothing? Mm. Yeah. So, um, I was just very intrigued by this idea, and mm. that actually led me to read up a bit more on manufacturing of clothes. Uh, and how, why is it so difficult for fast fashion pieces and for clothing in general to be recycled? Mm. Yeah, so if, if you don't mind, I can just share with you a bit here and there. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So, um, I would say that it is not feasible for people to just take pieces of clothing and shred it into small pieces, mm. make them into a pulp and recycle into a brand new piece. Mm. Because of the nature of cotton, okay. and, yeah, and how, um, long the thread needs to be in order for a piece of clothing to be durable. Okay. Yeah, so the cotton thread has to be of a certain length in order for the piece to be um, usable. Mm. And when you shred a piece of clothing back and make it into a pulp, unfortunately that thread length will not be maintained. And therefore this idea or this imagined concept mm. will not be possible to uh, exist. It will mm. not be possible for it to exist. Mm. Yeah, and I realized that, okay, that is why it is so difficult to do so. Mm. And that's just the practicality aspect. If you consider it from the financial aspect, in terms of how much does it cost to you know, ship everything to a centralized distribution, centralized recycling center, mm. break it down and you know, make it mm. from scratch again. It is really, really difficult to make this economically viable. Has there, has there been like any recycling efforts so far like in the world? Has people managed to like, have people managed to the so-called like, recycle all those uh, threads and cottons to come up with new pieces of clothing. So far, the only initiatives or like the more mainstream initiatives mm. have been um, clothing collection uh, okay. drives. Mm. So I'm not sure if you've ever seen before. If you go to places like H&M mm. or Levi's, there may be clothing collection bins mm. for you to throw your worn clothing or your used clothing in mm. and then they would, you know, so-called recycle it. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever experienced, like, you've ever seen... I think I vaguely remember mm. there being those kind of bins, yeah. Correct. So this actually makes the company look very good. It presents a very mm. um, responsible corporate social responsibility front. Is it like the kind of greenwashing, in a sense? Is it greenwashing? Maybe. Like, because especially like brands like H&M, which is known for being a fast fashion brand, right? Correct. So for it to, like... I don't know, I just read it up somewhere, you know, like, there are these active efforts that they have, just more just to mask the environmental damage that's causing to the world. Yeah, I guess so. But if you look at the nature of the process, mm. in terms of cost, I don't think the business can survive if it, if it were yeah, to really... Yeah, sure. I think you leave that up, like, leave that part to the later, later part of this <laughs> convo. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think we got sidetracked a bit into, like, fast fashion. Right. Right, yeah, so, yeah. so my first idea was about how mm. we can recycle pieces of fabric, old yeah. pieces of fabric, mm. and make new clothes out of it. But I realized that this is really challenging. Okay. So I was thinking, okay, if it is not easy for people to um, recycle clothes, mm. how can we continue to consume more sustainably? How mm. can we solve the overall sustainability and waste problem that mm. fashion is no so known for? Mm. Another idea I had thought of was um, changing the way people consume clothes. If we cannot recycle it, maybe we can inspire people to consume differently. 
mm. and one of the ideas I had in mind was something very similar to Rent the Runway for Stitch Fix in the United States. So back in, I believe this was in 2016, 2015-2016, uh, there was this Singaporean company called Style Theory that mm. was starting to gain traction. Mm. So what Style Theory does is that it purchases a, like, a huge inventory of clothes mm. and they allow consumers, customers to rent a few pieces of clothing maybe every month Mm -hmm. I think about like three or five pieces of clothing maybe mm -hmm. every month and then they can return it and continue renting uh, different pieces of clothing and this actually creates a very cyclical wardrobe okay. so this on the consumer front helps the uh, consumers to receive many, piece, many pieces of clothing mm -hmm. many different pieces of clothing and uh, never feel like they don't have anything to wear <laughs> yeah. at the same time it is a bit more sustainable because they are not buying new clothes but they are mm -hmm. just renting so this extends expands the um, product lifespan of every garment. Mm. Yeah. So I was thinking, okay, this is actually quite a possible um, idea to consider to inspire people to consume clothing more sustainably. Mm. But and I wanted to start this actually in, in NS. Okay. I realized, yeah. But upon thinking about it a bit more, I realized that hmm, it may not be as easy as you think. Why? Mm. Because if you look at the logistics of the of of this business. Mm. Firstly, you need to have uh, you need to have the access to a large group of wholesalers who are mm. willing to supply you with a huge inventory of clothes for a very low price. Mm. Right? Because even if you're going to buy everything um, yourself at mm. retail price, it's going to be extremely expensive. Yeah. Even if you can convince a huge group of wholesalers to sell you clothing, mm. the startup cost, the capital required to start this venture up will be extremely high. Mm. So to me, startup cost uh, might have been a barrier at that point in time. This was during NS, so I was quite young that time. Yeah, mm. and I was really thinking about how to go about doing it. Mm. Yeah, so firstly, startup costs would be an issue. And secondly would be um, logistics. So, what these rental companies do is that they just, they help you to deliver the clothing to you and they collect the clothing back from you and they will do the laundry for you. Okay. Yeah. Like they help you to dry clean the clothing before you know uh, sending out the next customer, etc., etc. Mm. And you know if there's any um minor issues or things like that, they help you to fix it. So if you look at the operational cost, the logistics cost, is of course very sizable because you need to factor in like delivery costs, laundry costs, dry cleaning costs, etc. And you take all of these costs and add it on top of the cost required for you just to start this mm. venture and gain your own inventory. So I was thinking, is this, I mean, maybe it is possible to break even if you have a sizable group of customers, maybe like, I don't know, five, ten years. Mm. But at the point when I was first starting, I was thinking, is it possible for me to start with the very little capital I have? Mm. And I realized that it's very, really very challenging to build something mm. given my age at the point in time. Yeah. Yeah, so in retrospect, I realized that hmm, it may be a bit challenging to you know, establish such a huge physical supply chain mm. and start this venture. So therefore, I didn't really start the clothing recycling venture and mm. I also didn't really start the um, reusing. reusing and recycling clothing rental venture. Mm. Yeah. And the final idea I had in towards the end of NS in 2017 was this um, personalization... Wait, 2018. Oh, sorry, yeah. 2018, yeah, yeah, 2018 and 2019, somewhere okay. around there. Yeah. 
Uh, that was in my second year of NS. Mm. Mm. So the third and final idea as of today mm. uh, was this personalization technology mm. that would recommend you clothes according to your body size, mm. your preferences, what looks good on you, and what doesn't look good on you. So you will actually move. You will not recommend you clothes that doesn't look good on you. Mm. And all of these recommendations would be made before you even visit the store. Because mm. you can think of it as like a personal stylist, mm. a proactive personal stylist. Mm. Yeah. But I realize that this is extremely, um, I would say a bit challenging on the technological mm. front to mm. initiate it. Initiate, because this is um, advanced machine learning and mm. at that point, unfortunately, I didn't have the technical skill set nor the access to the network for this to take place. Mm. Yeah, so I realized that this may not be um, very viable to start like mm. you know, yeah but i would say that in retrospect um these are the ideas i've had that really allowed me to explore more solutions as to mm. how we can consume fashion more responsibly mm. and how challenging it really is to implement a sustainable uh, solution mm. not just in terms of ev- environmental sustainability mm. but economic sustainability so while it is easy to you know, criticize fast fashion as being extremely wasteful, mm. while it is easy to you know, criticize startups for going down or asking why, why are they even trying, mm. if you look at it in retrospect, it is really challenging to create sustainable long-term solutions mm. that make economic sense for the fashion industry. Yeah. So, so that kind of pushed you to not pursue that degree? At this point in time, I would say that I'm really still thinking as to whether I want to pursue fashion in the future. Mm. I was thinking, yeah, because, you know, I'm doing mm. cons as yeah. a major, and I was thinking, can I maybe use my skills that I'll be learning mm. in this course, coupled with maybe work experience, mm. to really immerse myself into the fashion industry mm. to see, okay, what are the current solutions existing in the market, mm. and how can I leverage on my own skills and my own prior experience and knowledge mm. gained from work to develop solutions, okay. right? So I'm not saying that I'm completely giving up, I guess. So you have not ruled it off like completely. Correct. But it's right. really just shifting an approach and instead of rushing forward so quickly, mm. why not just take the time to and take a step back, you know, explore for your different, correct, correct. different career paths. Correct. And yeah. you can always go back to fashion because that's your, where your passion lies, right? I guess so, yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think we have the answer for why. For why. <laughs> Sorry, you know, yeah. Ideas change as a career path. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then, um, so that is that. And uh, let's go to the world of fashion today. So uh, how do you view like fashion, especially today, now after doing you know, a lot of research on it uh, and working on it for the past like six to eight years? I would say that my perception towards the fashion industry has definitely changed the more mm. I got, got to read about it. Mm. And, you know, the reasons as to why I got immersed in this whole industry in the first place back in 2014, 2015 has completely um, changed mm. over the years. I feel that the reasons as to why, what got me attracted is no longer there. So let me mm. just uh, elaborate a bit further. Okay. Yeah. So while I think, you know, all of these new fashion-related startups and these innovative ways to shop while I think they are fantastic in pushing the boundaries or the ways we shop forward, I think that the nature of the fashion industry as a whole is changing. Mm. Yeah, so um, 
Let me just share with you a bit about like the history of fashion and oh, how yeah, sure. fashion has evolved over the past century. Yeah. And this is not gonna be sound like super boring history lessons, <laughs> so it's a very quick primer, so don't worry. Mm. Yeah. Um fashion really got started, mm. I would say after World War Two. Back then before the war, when people wanted new clothes, they didn't obviously didn't have any like shopping malls or mm. places to buy it from. They had to make their own, right? Mm. So in Europe especially, many of or rather not really many, but in Europe there are a few specific tailors mm. uh, who basically did were really known for the quality of their craftsmanship and mm. the um, garments that they produced. And back then only of course the rich people could uh, afford fashion, mm. correct. So the rich people usually went to these select few tailors to make exquisite pieces of clothing and mm. word of mouth soon spread about them. Mm. And these tailors are basically the brands we know today. So mm. people like Christian Dior, people like um, Coco Chanel back then, mm. people like Karl Lagerfeld, Yves Saint Laurent, etc. Mm. Mm. And I would say that the fashion industry really exploded after World War II, right? Mm. So Coco Chanel, I, for Chanel they started before World War One. I. I believe mm. it was 1913 or something along that lines. Mm. And Christian Dior, he presented his new collection, his famous ultra famous collection mm. in nineteen forty seven, which is up mm. after World War Two. Mm. Yeah, so um, back then fashion was really dedicated and devoted to craftsmanship, mm. bespoke luxury, bespoke tailoring, and really the expression of what the designer's vision was, mm. and that was why I got so intrigued and interested in fashion in the first place. But fast forward to maybe 1980s, there was this guy who came into the industry and changed mm. everything. Yeah. His name was uh, Bernard Arnault. Mm. He's the founder, or rather the chairman and CEO of this um, conglomerate called LVMH. Mm-hmm. LVMH is the largest luxury conglomerate in the world. Okay. Yeah, it's a French-based uh, conglomerate. And this guy essentially started it all. Mm. I believe he started it... Um, with the acquisition of Christian Dior in 1984. So back then in 1984, um, I believe Christian Dior wasn't really doing that well and Bernard Arnault, he came in and turned the business over. Mm. Bernard Arnault unfortunately did not have a fashion background like all of the other tailors and couturiers. He was, his background was from real estate. He basically okay. was a real estate businessman. Mm. Oh my god, it sounds like Donald Trump. Okay, but... <laughs> no, yeah. Like, yeah, so... He came in and he... Basically... Transformed Christian Dior into the cash cow... That we know today. Mm. And... He basically applied this to many other... Fashion and luxury brands under the LVMH umbrella. Mm. So back in... You know... Immediately after the war, fashion was all about... Um, attention to detail luxury uh, and bespoke tailoring and really I would say putting in time and attention to detail over quantity and scale. Mm. Unfortunately with the acquisition of Christian Dior in 1984 um, Bernard Arnold saw this fantastic money-making opportunity this capitalistic opportunity to uh, from the fashion industry mm. so okay honestly I must say that Arnold's idea, his vision was genius. Why? He knew that Christian Dior wasn't doing that well, mm. but he was extremely well known for making luxury clothing 
at a very high prices mm. because of the attention to detail, attention to detail and the history of his house. Mm. And so he wanted to sell consumers this vision, even after Christian Dior passed away. Mm. He knew that luxury fashion had the potential to be sold to many consumers uh, because of the allure of luxury mm. and the glamour that it possesses. And he knew that he could capitalize on this opportunity long into the future, even after all of the um, founders passed away. Mm. Therefore, you see luxury today. All of the brands you see, all of the luxury brands you see at least, are still bearing the founders' names, even yeah. after the founders have um, passed away. Because they're still continuing to sell you that vision, that mm. history, and that craftsmanship. Mm. Yeah. But, I think, and I've actually read this... Um, I won't say that this is all from me. I've mm. actually been reading this book called Luxury by mm. this fashion journalist called Dana Thomas. Okay. Yeah, and in this book, she really outlines how fashion has changed since you know um, the early 20th century to where we are today. Mm. And I'll just say that the, the soul of the fashion industry has completely changed from why I used to love it in the past. And I think that honestly, frankly speaking, fashion might have lost its soul today. Mm. Luxury fashion especially is all about milking um, the designers to produce as many high quality and beautiful designs as possible with a disregard to you know the attention to detail that goes into every garment. Mm. Right. And in retrospect, I guess this is unfortunately the case because they are trapped by their own success. Mm. So LVMH as well as Caring. Caring is mm. like the parent competitor, the main competitor of LVMH. Mm. Caring is K-E-R-I-N-G. Okay. Yeah. So LVMH owns brands like Louis Vuitton, uh, Yves Saint Laurent. Mm. Oh my god, no, sorry. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so LVMH is like this parent company that okay. owns brands like Louis Vuitton, mm. Christian Dior, mm. Celine. Whereas, okay. yeah, whereas Caring owns brands like Gucci, Yves Saint Laurent, uh, mm. Alexander Wang. Mm. Right, so these two, I would say, are the main luxury competitors. Okay. And all of these conglomerates are also publicly listed mm. on the stock market, stock exchange. So unfortunately, mm. they have to present quarterly results mm. to investors. Mm. And you also, unfortunately, you have to present like you know profits or mm. at least a rising revenue mm. every single quarter. And unfortunately to me, they are trapped by their own success because you know you have to cut costs and maximize profit in... This, a publicly listed yeah. company, yeah. Mm. So to me, fashion has lost its soul. Um, people or luxury brands today are producing because they have to continue producing at speed, mm. and that quality and the attention to detail is no longer there. Mm. And I think we were discussing during for this episode, right? You were mentioning something about like diffusion lines. Like, can you like explain more about it? Because I I think like many of us are actually like not aware of. Such a term. Okay. okay. Correct. So you know, actually this really um clings on really well to the topic I was speaking about earlier, mm. about how fashion is really milking every opportunity to mm. generate more revenue and profit. Yeah. Mm. We can think of diffusion lines as like the um more affordable options for consumers who unfortunately may not be able to purchase uh the highest tier mm. products. So a diffusion line is basically a more affordable more affordably priced range of products that share the same designer's name. Mm. So the most common, or rather a common design, uh, a common diffusion line we can talk about is Armani. Yeah. Okay. 
Giorgio Armani is the premium price uh, clothing range. Mm. So if you think about you know making bespoke suits, mm. custom custom making your own suits, tailoring your own suits, you go to Giorgio Armani. Mm. Yeah. And then the sportswear line is Emporio Armani. Mm-hmm. So it's like the most casual, more sportswear line. Mm. Yeah. And the diffusion lines of Armani would be Armani Exchange, Armani Jeans, and so on and so forth. Okay. So some consumers they may want to buy into the Armani vision. They want mm. to buy into the Armani dream. Mm. But they cannot afford a fifteen thousand dollar suit mm. made by Giorgio Armani. Mm. So they can buy something from I don't know, Armani jeans for example, which mm. may go for $120. Mm. So this is more affordable for the consumer to buy into the dream. Mm. And this is also um beneficial for the Armani owner. Mm. Because Ultimately, all of these. So it retains, it retains like the brand name, lah. Correct. Correct. And this was exactly uh, Bernardo's idea when he first bought over Christian mm. Dior in 1984. He knew that you see, you can always milk the brand, like the yeah. the, the vision of what the brand is trying to say. Because I think people are willing to go ahead and buy, right? As in, Correct. Like, I think there's always this constant, like, uh, I won't say search, but like you know, this constant uh, hunger, you know, to kind of. I mean, if you ask any other person, they'll be like, well, I want to get something from this particular brand, which is of the top tier. So, and you know, these are the brands that people actually want to own it someday. And I feel as long as that idea lives on within the society, right, these guys can, can go and make their money. Correct. So I think um, social status is one of mm. our fundamental human needs. Yeah. And buying a luxury product mm. conveys to the world that you are of a certain social status. So what these luxury brands do is excellent marketing. Mm. They tell you that yes, you still can buy into this brand and you still can be perceived um, mm. of this specific status, mm. even if this is a diffusion line, mm. even if this is not the premium price brand that mm. uh, you know is known for being luxurious. Yeah. Mm. So that's quite interesting. So I mean, having said all of this, right? So about these conglomerates. And these like you know big players in this whole market, what kind of advice would you give, or what would you do, if you were to start like a new fashion company? So like, what would your advice be? Hmm. Honestly, I would say like if you're just starting out as maybe either one person or mm. a really small team, mm. I would not suggest competing against like these large corporations mm. and large conglomerates. I would suggest really sticking to one core product mm. and being very well known for that singular core product first. Mm. And then slowly over time, you branch out into related um, niche products. What do you mean by a core product? Like a shirt or something like that? Uh, I would say that you should really be known for a very niche product and mm. a niche take a very specific stance towards an issue. Okay. Mm. So, um, if you look... I'm not sure if you heard about this fashion designer called Vivian Westwood. No. She's a, I'm not sure if she's London based, but I know she's um, from the UK. Mm. And she's very known for bringing this punk rock style mm. to the mass market. And she's perpetually known for being very rebellious against conventions and always oh, sticking. Okay. Yeah. And she's always um, sticking to a very try and true punk rock rebellious aesthetic throughout her entire career. Mm. So it is very difficult to um, establish a brand that stands for everything. 
especially in this day and age, mm. it might be more effective to just do one small, not really small, but one unique thing first mm. and getting really good at it. Okay. And then maybe over time, as you expand, people may support you for other related areas. Or people like Envy and Page can buy you. Yes, actually, it makes sense. I remember mm. they recently made an acquisition. Uh, okay, I don't think it's because it was niche, mm. but it is. they do have quite a niche product. I believe in 2018 or 2017 or 2019, I can't remember, mm. they bought over Fenty. Fenty Beauty. Okay. Yeah. And do you know what Fenty Beauty is? I think I've, I've seen it. Yeah, so Fenty Beauty is this mm. uh, beauty and skincare line owned by Rihanna, mm. right? Mm. And they bought it over. Mm. That's the most recent purchase uh, by the LVMH umbrella. Mm. So Fenty Beauty is known for, do you know? So Fenty Beauty is known for providing many shades uh, of skincare and like lipstick okay. and concealer and foundation mm. for many, many, many skin tones. Okay. Yeah. So regardless of what uh, color of the skin mm. you have, um, there will be a shade for you for Fenty Beauty. Mm. And so Fenty is known for its inclusivity mm. and partially because Rihanna, Rihanna is the founder. Mm. So she is of a person of color herself. Mm. And so there's this um, compelling to her brand. Mm. Yeah, so Fenty is known for skincare firstly, mm. and more, more importantly, it is known for inclusive skincare mm. that uh, account that that really caters for every consumer, mm. regardless of the color of the skin. Okay. And this is what they are known for. Mm. So maybe, they, I guess you can say that they are successful because Rihanna started it, mm. but they are also known for being inclusive. Mm. So that is how they thrill, like thrive in today's Okay. So there's an example of how starting with a very niche product mm. and how being known for a very niche cause mm. would really take you very far in today's um, value-driven society. Yeah. Okay, sure. So moving on, right? Uh, let's like, uh, so since we spoke about uh, luxury brands, you know, in such depth, I think now we can speak about or talk about the other the side of the spectrum, which is basically fast fashion. So uh, I think fast fashion kind of like is an example of uh, process optimization, right? Like, you know, they kind of like cut down all their, basically streamline their entire uh, process of manufacturing clothes in terms of like, you know, the designing phase, you know, getting the materials and actually coming up with your clothes and then selling it to the mass market. You know, I think compared to like luxury brands, which takes like probably like a few months, like probably yeah. more than half a year. You're correct. And they just reduce it to like within a weeks right. or like within a, a couple of months. So I think it has kind of changed the entire game, you know, because uh, I think now with like, especially with social media, you know, things like Instagram, I think people are like constantly looking for like new uh, designs, new fashion, so that, you know, their Instagram is always changing. They are not buying the same thing. And I think that is what really helped this kind of fast fashion business to like really boom. And it's like going well for them. And um, yeah, so I think this is why fast fashion came about. And this is what it does. But in your opinion, right, do you think uh, it is ethical? Like, what do you think about the ethical aspect of it? Because if I'm not wrong, right, like a lot of this streamlined process, a lot of this cutting down the cost, I think has a lot of cost to pay. Cost to pay for. And so what are your thoughts about these costs? 
I would say that fast fashion is like the McDonald's. Yeah, fast fashion is like mm-hmm. the McDonald's of the fashion industry. Yeah. All of the manufacturing process, the merchandising mm. process, the resource allocation process has been streamlined to ensure that speed is prioritized. Mm. So it's, it's not like we completely agree with you as to how um, fast fashion really meets our desires, mm. especially like the younger generation's desires for mm. something new consistently. Yeah. And they also come up with designs which are quite similar to those top luxury yes. brands, right? I mean, they come with this thing called like knockoffs, which are like very similar in design, but they're not exactly the same. So it still gives you, I mean, from very far, I don't think one can differentiate between like an actual luxury brand, uh, shoes or clothes from a, from a fast fashion product. So, so yeah, so well, what do you think about this? I mean, uh, with regards to the ethical mm. question, is fast fashion ethical? Obviously, the answer that leads to me is no. Mm. Um, from a resource allocation and economic standpoint, this is fantastic because yeah. it allows um, customers to you know receive new pieces of clothing as quickly and as cheaply as possible. Mm. But is it ethical? No. Because this um, accessibility is indeed gained, but at what cost? Mm. I would say that it is at the cost of our environment firstly and most importantly mm. and secondly also at the cost of human lives yeah so um, in order to minimize costs to you know produce clothing as cheaply as possible mm. the, the amount of money that we are paying to the people who make these clothes will also be very minuscule mm. so uh, I would say that unfortunately the industry has decided to go ahead with um, leveraging on all of these lower mm. skilled labour mm. which is cheaper and also more efficient to make these um, pieces of clothing that can be resold for a cheaper price cheaper mm. retail price at least mm. yeah. so in my opinion, no fast fashion is not ethical because of the cost and not in terms of monetary cost per se but the environmental cost and the human lives li- livelihood aspect mm. of this Okay, so yeah, I think that pretty much encompasses all the wrong things with, or like, well, not all the wrong things, I would say, like, all the shortcomings of fast fashion, basically. And, uh, but then, so in your life, which kind of brands do you go for? Like, do you try to get those luxury brands? Are you okay with fast fashion? Or are you like the mid tier? Actually, um, just to add a bit more about mm. the fast fashion portion. Yeah, I think we can. Yeah. Mm, I would say that, yes, maybe it is... Um, maybe it is easy to criticise you know, the fashion industry for exploiting mm. low-income and lower-skilled workers. Mm. You know, And usually these workers will be found in places like um, China, Nepal, India, mm. like the more rural regions of these countries, mm. obviously. Uh, because, you know, they exploit the human lives mm. in order to pro- produce more clothes cheaply. Mm. But at the same time, we also need to question ourselves, like, and this is really examining the opposite side of your argument. Mm. Like, these um, positions, mm. as exploiting as they may seem, mm. it might actually contribute to the region's jobs, or maybe the villages yeah. or the cities' mm. jobs, right? It may mm. give these low-skilled workers a chance for them to make themselves valuable and mm. contribute their skills back to the broader society at large. Yeah, because I think yeah, I think people want to see like larger side of the coin as well because uh, 
if you're really talking about these like sport insurance and like sweat shops and stuff, uh, we have to see whether are there any real alternatives to it. Because I think a lot of people do speak out about it. They're like, okay, do not don't support fast fashion. Do not support you know things that you know make use of these low skilled workers in like developing countries. But to be honest, what are the other alternatives alternatives that these people have? Because I don't because think employment. yeah, because I don't think the governments are also like providing any other like skill uh, upgradings or or providing education which will solve like most of these problems and uh and i think from that point of view right this is what they could at least earn you know i mean it could be and i heard in certain cases that like less than a uh, one us dollar a day correct i know it's not sufficient i know it's not enough but they c- it could be you know they could be worse off correct without these jobs and without you know these you know the whatever little money they gain from it so yeah, no, I think it's yeah, as you said, it's very important to analyze the situation from from both sides and also like really um, try to understand uh, what they are arguing for and also like take a personal stand on whether you want to support it or not. Correct. So I think yeah. yeah. I mean the economic conditions and the employment mm-hmm. conditions are definitely not ideal. Yeah. But if we look at these um, circumstances in relation with the other alternatives that mm-hmm. they have. This may not be the worst circumstance they can yeah. be in, firstly, and they may not even have many other livable alternatives to yeah. even contend with. Mm. Basically, they do not really have the privilege of choice. Yeah. Right? So unfortunately, this to me is more of a structural and social issue. Mm. Uh, personally, I feel that this is more for like policies to resolve and mm. more for the governments to step in. Mm. They need to you know, inspire more infrastructure, in mm. the countries or more access to education in the countries yeah. it is not within the fashion industry to you know make much of a change for mm. I do think we can still take steps to maybe be more transparent mm. about our supply chains mm. so I do know of a few small brands in Singapore mm. that are very transparent about where their clothes come from mm. so these brands include labels like Paradigm Shift label mm. or Source Collections they are very fully transparent about who makes their clothes how much does each part, like each um, factor of production mm. costs and where uh, all the clothes come from. Mm. So I do think that the industry can take some steps to be a bit more transparent mm. about the process that goes into making the clothing. Mm. But ultimately, uh, if you want to resolve the issue of you know how fast fashion exploits people and things like that, there has to be a combination between, there has to be some collaboration mm. between the fashion industry and maybe the government or like mm. the broader people, the decision makers, broader decision makers. Mm. Yeah. We cannot just blame the fashion industry. We just can't, so point, can't pinpoint one particular yeah. factor. Correct. And we cannot just expect that one industry mm. to make the entire change, yeah. the entire value chain for the entire world. It's mm. just to me not really very feasible. Mm. Yeah. So I think we really need to appreciate the different viewpoints that uh, and the different circumstances that those people over there may have yeah because from our context yeah one dollar a day one US dollar a day looks horrible mm. it is horrible but for those people there it might be all they have mm. and it might be a good it may be a good option compared to the alternatives that mm. are presented to them mm. yeah so like going back to the question what kind of clothes do you wear Honestly, most of my clothes come from Uniqlo. <laughs> okay. I mean, uh, I mean, I feel that Uniqlo clothes are cheap. Uniqlo, a fast fashion. Yes, right? actually, <laughs> that's why I'm, 
I unfortunately I do consume fast fashion. Mm. Uh, that's why I'm not extremely vocal against it because mm. I feel like it'll be it will be a bit hypocritical yeah. to be fully against it and yet still buy from it. Mm. Right. Uh, unfortunately, I still do buy from Uniqlo. Mm. Their clothes are affordable. They're durable and they're basic and look good. Mm. Right. And it's easy to dress up or dress down with. Mm. Uh, for that matter, yes. But I feel that we can consider more local options firstly, mm. more sustainable options, and maybe support more independent fashion designers, be mm. it in Singapore or abroad. Yeah. Okay. So local fashion options, for example, maybe brands like Source Collections. Mm. Source Collections basically sell our very basic clothes. Mm. Basic as in like basic t-shirts, like white mm. t-shirts or black t-shirts, mm. made of um, sustainable materials, mm. environmentally friendly materials. Mm. Um, Another one will be Paradigm Shift Label, as mm. I shared earlier. Uh, if you want to support more independent designers, you can go and look them up. Okay. Like, oh, like, I can't think of any Singaporean ones specifically in mind. Mm. I know of one in the UK called Edward Needham. Mm. Yeah, his clothes are beautiful. Like, okay. I really love their clothes. Like, I think on my Instagram, I do, it's like this very large um, graphic tee, like this long mm. sleeve, very large graphic tee, but huge design. Mm. Yeah, I do post that on Instagram. I really love his clothes. Mm. To me, his clothes are not that expensive. Mm. It's about eighty dollars per piece, mm. like for a top. So to me, it's not expensive. To others, it might be more expensive, mm. and maybe fast fashion may be their main choice, mm. like their main preference. Yeah, but for me, I think I do support. I mean, I do consume fast fashion, but at the same time, if um I want to purchase more higher quality stuff, I'll definitely support either more local brands or more independent brands. Mm. And if you want to look at menswear, like suits or whatever, mm. you can consider Benjamin Barker too. Mm. I believe it is either an Australian or Singaporean brand. I can't remember. Okay. Yeah. So there are other alternatives out there that fall in the middle of the spectrum between fast fashion and luxury. Mm. I'm not saying that, oh, if you cannot buy fast, if you don't support fast fashion or if you don't want to buy fast fashion, the only other alternative is luxury. Mm. That's not true. There are many other um, environmentally friendly solutions out there. Mm. There are many other smaller independent labels out there. Mm. And I think these brands also deserve our support. And we can yeah. really purchase these clothes if we look hard enough. If we go research them hard enough. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to your life. Mm. So what are your plans for the future? So are you? how do you think of uh, incorporating you know, fashion uh, as part of your day-to-day life? At this point in time, I'm a bit more mindful about how I consume. I mean, mm. after like nearly, you know, you know, not really nearly 10 years, but mm. after quite a significant amount of time looking into how the fashion industry has been evolving, mm. I think my mm. own clothing choices, I will be more mindful about my own clothing choices. Mm. Um, I will of course try to only buy clothes within my means firstly, and buy clothes from labels whose values I align with. Mm. Yeah, And at the same time, we also should at least for me, I would try to present myself in a more, uh, I'll try to present my make myself more presentable, mm. not by the you know the price of the clothing mm. that I wear, or like the brands of the clothing I wear, mm. but how I style it. Right. Okay. So some people can buy clothes from like Uniqlo, mm. or maybe buy I don't know H and M or something, mm. but they can look really good in it, mm. really good in it because they know how to style themselves well. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's important to not just cheese brands mm. or not just um, 
buy the most expensive product from the most expensive brands mm. but learn what works for you mm. what colors suit you what types what cuts of clothing suit you mm. and how you can look the best in whatever clothes you may be wearing mm. yeah and but then as a the career okay so oh, sorry <laughs> I'm going a bit off tangent. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So for my career right now, I'm about to pursue a degree in economics, mm. and I'm thinking of re- really leveraging on the skill sets that I learned to mm. maybe improve fashion businesses. Mm. Yeah. So throughout, if you, re- I'm not sure if you realize, but throughout this entire talk, I never really talked about design per se mm. because I really enjoy fashion businesses mm. and understanding like the analytical side that mm. goes into running a fashion brand. Mm. So be it writing, breaking down the conceptual ideas, mm. or running a business. Yeah. Mm. And I'm thinking when I graduate, it would be good to, you know, leverage all the skills I've learned along the way to maybe um, contribute to the industry in whatever way I can with these skills. Mm. Alternatively, I can maybe try to start something again. Mm. You know, I'm after these few years and hopefully after a few years of working experience, mm. I'll grow a bit older and more wiser and a bit more experienced. So if I were to contribute into the fashion industry again in the future, I'll make more um, informed decisions mm. based on my experiences and lessons I've learned along the way. Yeah, so that is really the two paths I may consider in the future. Mm. I mean, um, I mean uh, for all we know, I may not even join yeah. the fashion industry in the future, so I don't know. <laughs> but you're quite open to it. Like, you think Correct. there might be a possibility for it in the future. Correct. I think it's good to just leverage like the skills you learn mm. in university or skills mm. and just see where you can continue applying them for the future yeah and it's good to be open-minded for your own career opportunities yeah so i think we have come to the end of this episode so um well, in my opinion right i think i've honestly learned a lot from this podcast like you know be it in the pre-recording phase when we interacted and did a quite quite a bit of research and uh of course during this recording phase as well you know i think we I think I personally learned a lot and you know I, I would not have researched on this if not for this episode. So I think so I'll say like thank you for that. And um yeah, and for you guys, I think like the fashion industry is one of the you know the biggest industries out there in the world right now. And uh it's quietly, you know, kind of made a huge impact in our day-to-day lives because I mean, we wear clothes everywhere we go out, right? So, so I mean, it, it kind of makes a statement to like other people, and especially with Instagram and social media, you know, whatever you wear, people kind of look at it. I mean, even if you do not want them to, you know, yeah. this is kind of like a central, uh, a, like attraction, a central uh, focus of the image. So I think it's uh, very important, and I hope that, you know, through this podcast, you know, we were able to make your maybe more aware of like the situation present in the fashion industry and um, you know, hopefully the next time you step into a clothing store you know, to buy or purchase uh, any any product, any clothing product you know, I think you would kind of consider whatever we have said and you know, really try to understand you know, like the ethics of fashion as mentioned by Thaddeus and uh, make an informed decision so yeah, I think that's the end of this episode and uh thank you Dennis for being part of it and uh thank you so much for having me <laughs> yeah sure i mean no problem and goodbye to all of y'all and i'll uh, see y'all in another episode in a different topic next week okay. bye bye